Well, now, last week, after months of discussion, debates and false alerts, Ukraine's counteroffensive finally seemed to get underway, though not with the expected bang. However, fierce fighting's underway in various parts of the country. Trenches and mines are playing big roles, just as in former wars. And the consensus from various commentators watching closely is that the Ukrainians are making small advances, like half a kilometre, but the Russians are not falling back too far yet. What can we expect to see in the crucial weeks and months to come? What tactics and weapons can we expect to see deployed? Well, I'm delighted to welcome a very respected observer of the modern military, Dr. Frank Ledwidge. He's a former UK military intelligence officer and barrister who served in the military. He specialised in issues like torture, war crimes and trafficking. And his book, Losing Small Wars, has become a bit of a classic. He returned last month from a comprehensive tour of Ukrainian military operations. And I spoke to him last night. Good morning, Geraldine. Privileged to be with you. Tell us, please, of your key observations from that recent intensive tour. The first reflection, and this is particularly relevant, I think, given the last week or so, is that the Ukrainian command was very keen to stress to us that we were not to expect what you just described there as a bang. Rather, there would be a series of of offensive operations that would go on over the summer, this was not going to be the kind of counter-offensive, one jump and we'll be free over by Christmas affair that many, I think, were leading themselves to believe it would be. So what they were very keen to stress was, don't expect a massive assault like you saw in Kharkiv last year. Expect something more like the kind of operations that they did in Kherson, which were much more incremental. And Clearly, that's what we're seeing. Now, they clearly didn't outline everything they planned. You said they were, they're quite canny and careful. But what could you discern in terms of how they saw their biggest risks and their biggest potential advantage? The risks I can express by using a historical example, the Battle of Kursk. So at that battle, which was arguably one of the two or three major decisive battles, mm. there's no one battle. The big tank second, battle. That's right. That itself, Prokhorivka, with the tank battle, was part of a much larger operation, not too dissimilar to the one the Ukrainians are planning. In other words, what the Germans were doing there, and I'm not drawing comparisons one way or the other, but what the Germans were doing there was trying to penetrate multiple lines of defences, much as the Russians have prepared. What happened was that the initial assault, supported by artillery and all the breaching equipment that were available at the time. It proceeded quite well initially, and then it ran out of steam, basically. And then the Germans, in that case, were subject to counterattack. So that's the major risk, that the Ukrainians would get bogged down. This is why they don't want to do this in one great assault like the Germans did, that they get bogged down in deep defences and subject themselves to counterattack. What they're trying to do here, literally as we speak, is establish essentially the nature of the, the Russian defensive line, where and how the Russians defend it. We're speaking on Friday, and at this point, there hasn't been a commitment of the major Ukrainian force. So they're not doing what the Germans did, in other words. They're not taking that risk of throwing it all in one go. They're assessing the Russian defences. They're now in what's called, in technical terms, the security zone, Russian defensive doctrine, 
posits a security zone in front of the main defences. So that's where the, the Ukrainians are now, and they've got to the main defences in some places. They're not taking that risk. But we haven't seen the main force or anything like it deployed yet. Much too early to say how it's going in that respect. Yes, I've heard various commentators suggest that this can't even really be considered a full counter-offensive yet. It's more probing operations. Till the Ukrainians start using their very latest equipment, like the Leopard tanks and certain missiles received from other Western countries. Now, I wonder if you agree with that, because I have also begun to observe they are being deployed now, a bit. The losses that have been reported of these platforms, leopard tanks, some countermine vehicles, Bradley American armoured cars, armoured fighting vehicles, are actually very few. The talk is based around one or two incidents. And what we're seeing now is we're looking at this through a glass darkly, if you like, very opaque, uh, seen lit occasionally by very brief flashes of lightning. We're not we're not seeing really what's going on. We don't know, in other words, what's going on. But one thing I think we can say, and I would agree with what those commentators you were mm. quoting, we've not really seen yet the the main deployment, the main attack. Let's call them probing probing attacks all across the front. There are four axes. There's one in western Zaporizhia. That's going down to a town called Tokmak, which is a, a big uh, road junction. Western Donetsk, that's just south of Bakhmut, a few dozen kilometres south of Bakhmut. They're heading down there. They'll, they'll be aiming for the route to Mariupol. They may not get there, but that's the way they're heading. There are also subsidiary assaults in Bakhmut and up in the northeast as well, near the battle zone last year of Severodonetsk. But those are subsidiary at the moment. But we say subsidiary, we don't know. And that's the way it should be. We don't know where the Ukrainian main assault may take place. It may be somewhere entirely differently. And one of the things, as you hint there, that the Ukrainians major on is silence. Silence is the friend of plans. That's very much stressed in Ukrainian information operations at the moment, and they're doing it really well. As for the equipment that you spoke of, very little of it's been deployed as far as we can see. Losses have been very few and easily replaceable. And the one thing we learn from those images of abandoned tanks and armoured vehicles is that they do not explode when hit. The crews survive, so these well-trained crews can get out. And usually the equipment that has been damaged is recoverable. So we'll see it again and repairable. So that's not all bad news at all. Mm. There's few few losses and such losses as there have been largely are largely paradoxically encouraging for the Ukrainians, if I can put it like that. Having spoken to them, are you expecting this because of what they told you, this summer offensive, to be decisive or not? Well, there's a difference between what they consider and what I, I might consider. So let, let's say what they say. My view is, for what it's worth, I don't think this will be decisive operationally, but it could be strategically. And I mean by that that they may not get down to the Sea of Azov coast. They may. You know, that's crystal ball stuff. What's important is they make sufficient advances to be able to convince Western audiences, and particularly in the United States, for obvious reasons, that this is a war worth continuing. And whether they attain 200-kilometre advances or 50-kilometre advances, I think what they're going to need to do is demonstrate that they've taken something that they'd lost, something significant that they'd lost, now be that a town or a, or a junction or, um, or reshaping the line in some way. That's at the strategic level. At the operational level, uh, and that we are now at the operational level, by that I mean where your forces actually go, 
their view is Crimea is the, as they put it, the main direction or the center of gravity, as General Zaluzhny called it, commander of Ukrainian forces many months ago. And so what they're going to be wanting to do is to cut the main supply routes into Crimea, the land bridge, if you like. It doesn't mean they have to get to the coast, by the way, and isolate Crimea and hold it at risk which mm. means it's within range of their longer range weapons, which to some extent it already is. So the even new... if they're not in there occupied, they've... Exactly. And I think I, I can't see them getting into Crimea either because I think that they would be stopped before getting there or that the offensive will culminate, which is probably more likely. In other words, it'd stop sensibly. Or I feel that the US would stop them. I think that crossing the Perikopismos into Crimea with their army, should they ever get that far, would be a step too far for the you, Americans. You think the Americans would stop them? Yes, I think they would. Because there comes a point where the political will in the US is contingent on uh, on perceived strategic risk. And, and I think, and, and this is not unreasonable, that US strategists take the view that Ukrainian tanks powering into Crimea would constitute the kind of trigger where... You, Putin would think of seriously of escalating and would, um, in their view, that's to say Russian view, justify the deployment, if not the use of, of uh, sorry, the threat, serious threat, if not the use of nuclear weapons. Well, Lukashenko, his, his ally in uh, neighbouring Belarus, he has been sort of ranting on a little bit lately about this, not that Putin has confirmed it. And of course, the Chinese have told him not to talk like this, but you think there is a risk, do you? Uh, no, no, not unless, and I think this is unlikely anyway, not unless there is a breach of the Perikop Peninsula, which is way, way, way down the road. Perikop, sorry, the Isthmus is the, is the, uh, the way into Crimea. It's only about 10 miles wide. It's very difficult to take anyway. But were Ukrainian tanks to be approaching Simferopol or Sevastopol in, in Crimea, I think that would be a step too far. I just don't think the American. I think the Americans will, would instruct the Ukrainians to stop and negotiate at that point. And if they got that far, by the way, they'd have that would have been a major victory, yes. a huge strategic uh, But you said in a recent podcast that you were astonished at the Ukrainians' resolve but you also said their hatred and from coming from surprising people, you know, quite rational sort of lawyer types who were trained to be somewhat more sober at, at what you heard, which doesn't exactly um, lend weight to the idea, you know, that they'd be available for a ceasefire. No, well, well look, if they get that far, that would be a major victory. And I think it would be sold that way and it would be true. We're a long way from that. And it would set them, by the way, on the track to... I mean, this is a hypothesis, but a negotiation where, where Crimea would be at stake in the negotiation, no question about it. I think the problem would come for Russia if uh, Ukrainian armies were to get there. That's where the Russian elites would either step in against Putin, which would again trigger a response. But all this is speculation. As to the Belarusian angle of nuclear weapons, interesting, but that is saber-rattling. Uh, that was announced last August, first of all. It was re-announced in February at different stages of deployment and training, and then it was re-announced last week. So I don't think we should put much stock on that. The Belarusians don't have delivery systems. These are free-fall bombs. We can forget that. But as for the resolve of the Ukrainian people, you're quite right. Absolutely. The hatred of of Russia and Russians on the part of the huge majority of the population is absolutely palpable. And, of course, were there to be a situation where Ukraine was forced to stop ahead of some kind of uh, appreciable victory, that would be a political problem for Zelensky. 
because he has promised, of course, every square meter of mm. Ukrainian land back, which, by the way, also includes, we talk about Crimea because that's their center of gravity, according to their generals, but there's also Donetsk and Luhansk too. Hmm. Look, what, um, did, yeah. what did you discern the, the Ukrainians knew about Russian military preparedness? Because a lot of them would have served with Russians, I take it, in, 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 in previous times. And, you know, there's a great deal of shared sensibility. Um, I, I just wonder how, how they judge Russian morale and, and Russian tactical abilities. Well, yeah, you know, that, that's... That's absolutely critical. You have generals like Sierski, who is the commander of the offensive in the south, who grew up, you know, I'm, he's, I think he's just a bit older than I am, I'm 57. And I started in the army in the mid 80s, where we were training against the Russians. So he would have been a junior officer by then with the Soviet army and a very successful Soviet office, young officer. And he's come through that that system and then come through the Ukrainian system. So he knows them intimately. Mm-hmm. And many dozens of other senior officers do too. The senior commander, General Zaleshny, is one of the new generations. So they really know their enemies. And they know the way they fight. They know all their doctrine. They know Often they'll know them personally as well. You know, I remember the people I trained with way back then who are now generals. And they will, who knows, they may even have had friendships with these people. But they're also overlaid with NATO and Western operational, that's at the sort of general level, general's level doctrine. Mm. So they've got the, the advantage of knowing their enemy, but also knowing how to beat the enemy, because NATO and its doctrine has beaten Soviet doctrine, Soviet enemies, if you like, in the past in Iraq and the, the, the Balkans elsewhere. I wonder if you think we should expect more Kharkova dams, and which clearly has actually caused a lot more dis- difficulties than we might have even initially thought. I mean, difficulties for the people, but difficulties um, strategically as well. Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's very, in- it took a long time to, to, to get through my head what was going on with the Kahov Kadam. Because yeah, it is it is an escalation. That's a lateral escalation, if you like. It sort of broadens the war. A war crime, do you think, by the way? Because it's oh, clearly... Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, certainly, mm. ecocide, uh, Zelensky called it, and he's quite right. But the one thing that concerns me is what the Russians haven't done yet, what's still in their, their, their quiver, if you like. They've nothing militarily. They've, they've played all their aces to use all these metaphors. They've nothing up their sleeve militarily. But what they can do, and there are certain things they could do, uh, they could take down certain bridges, which is strategically vital, which they never did. Many of us wondered why. They could damage the national transport infrastructure in ways that I don't want to even m- mention here. The, there are obviously the nuclear elements in terms of civil nuclear power stations, which could be threatened. All of these things are not beyond Russian ken, if you like. And I think the Kharkovka Dam, which gave them very little military advantage, but did what it did was say... Look, we're prepared to do this. This is how this is how ruthless we're prepared to be, and we don't really care because also it's a self-inflicted injury on Crimea, uh, too, because it stopped the water there, and they've got to bring a lot more water in. But there it is; they're prepared to do that, and it was an indication of where how far they're prepared to go, and that's very concerning. Look, last question: Are the Ukrainians talking about life post-war or not? Very much so. Just on that civil aspect, one of the things, when you're in a country at war, and I, I've been in a few conflicts, but never really in a country at war like that, and a long war, everybody's dreams are shattered. You know, if you've got any plans, they're gone. You're not going to go to university. You're not going to get a new job. You can't, your family's stopped. Your boyfriend's or husband's away. You, you can't start your family. 
needless to say, the vast casualties too. So plans are very difficult to make. But yes, they really are. And what the, what you often hear, it's a very corrupt country, Ukraine, but what you often hear is we will not tolerate the level of corruption again. This is going to be a, we're going to, nobody used the term of land fit for heroes, but let's not forget what happened after the Second World War, certainly in the UK and in Australia too. You had a new, a, a renovation if you like, of mm. politics. And I suspect that's what there may be there in Ukraine. And people are thinking about that now, especially in civil society. But they're going to ha- have to get past this uh, this next couple of years mm. first. That's going to be very tough. Next couple of years. OK. <laughs> All right, Frank Ledwich, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Geraldine. It's been a privilege. Frank Ledwich is a former military intelligence officer, a, a barrister in the UK Defence Force. And his book is... Uh, uh, winning small wars, um, and he will. I think we'll go back to him probably in a few weeks' time, and just. I think it's actually losing small wars. <laughs> I think I'm sorry, it's the wrong, wrong title. It never in front of me, uh, and I think we'll check in with him later. Well, up next, the painful subject of loneliness for men. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.